Father, thank you for the fact that we do indeed have victory. But the only reason we have victory is because you have victory. Over death, hell, and the grave, God, you are victorious. Today, as we look at your word and we see the reality of Jesus Christ, Lord, as he reveals himself to John, and the things that he shows John, the things he opens his eyes to, Lord, I just pray that our eyes, too, would be opened. God, I pray that sometimes, God, we get so deep in the weeds that, God, we just can't see clearly. Uh, God, I pray that today we'd be able to see clearly. I pray that we would just look at the beauty of your grace and your word, and may we be just completely absorbed in it. God, may we just, just bask in it. Uh, I know that sometimes we have a tendency to overanalyze things and and God, I know that it's good sometimes to really look deep, but I also know that it is so good sometimes to just bask in your glory. So today, I pray that that's what we do. We just experience you. God, we get close to you. We hear from you. We hear from your Holy Spirit. God, I just pray that today you would be glorified as we look at your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So has anybody ever been to an art museum? Okay, three people. That's going to make this illustration a little difficult. Has anybody ever seen a piece of art? Okay, good. That's five people. That's great. All right, good. We're rolling now. <clears throat> so um, I used to hate art when I was little. Um, I, I, you know, I used to go into a museum, an art museum, and I would be like, I don't get it. It's like some guy put paint on top of paint, on top of paint, and like it just looks really thick and really goopy, and I don't really get it, right? So I, I don't really enjoy this. It, this painting looks very similar to this painting. And, and you, you know what I'm talking about. You look at some of the pieces of art, and you go, a, a kindergartner could have painted that. You know what I mean? Like it looks like they took a crayon, and they just went like this, you know, and you're like, and that's worth $100,000. I don't get that. You know what I mean? Like I, I don't get it. I mean, you wonder, right? And I used, to, I used to not like looking at pictures like that. I just really didn't. I was like, this is boring. I don't get it, blah, blah, blah. Well, Ferris Bueller's Day Off changed all that for me, okay? <laughs> Does anybody know what I'm talking about? So, yes, amen. To, I, I say Ferris Bueller's Day Off, and everybody goes, oh, yes, praise the Lord, amen. Yeah, I, I've seen Ferris Bueller's Day Off. So, <clears throat> Ferris Bueller's Day Off, if you remember, they went to, uh, I believe it was, yeah, it was. I know it was, as a matter of fact. It was the Art Institute of Chicago, uh, and he and his girlfriend, his best friend, they all go to like the, the art museum and they're playing this music, you know, and it, it's so cool. They're like holding hands with little kids as they're going through the museum. You know the scene I'm talking about. But like they, they then there's a scene where they're just like looking at a piece of art and they're just kind of engrossed in it. So I got the opportunity to go to the Art Institute of Chicago a few months ago, all right? So I was in Chicago. I was right down the road from it. It's also right across the street from Millennium Park, which it has the giant bean that's silver. Everybody knows what I'm talking about, right? You probably saw my Facebook. You know what I'm talking about. I took a picture of it. Like, it's very famous in Chicago, this giant silver bean. And you're wondering, like, why is that art? You know, like, I, it looks like a mirror that's in the shape of a kidney bean. I don't get it, you know? Like, but <clears throat> what I did when I went there is I kind of did what they did in Ferris Bueller's Day Off. As a matter of fact, and, and I'm, I, I'm not too proud to say this, but I actually played the same music in my ears. I put my earbuds in. I played the Ferris Bueller's Day Off song where they were in the museum. I played that in my ears while I was just, like, looking at the art. And I really enjoyed it, okay? Like, 
Ferris Bueller's Day Off kind of changed my perspective of art because what happened was before I would like, I would look at all the details and, and like this was painted on cardboard. Dude, what, why is this worth $10,000? It was painted on cardboard with Crayolas. Like, I don't get it. But like when I was there, I just kind of looked at the art and just kind of got absorbed by it. You know, I try not to pick it apart. I just tried to feel it, you know. I just tried to just be a part of it and like just allow myself. Like I don't have to think anything in particular about it. I just want to put myself there, you know. And, and that's what I did. And, and so one thing that kind of made me realize is sometimes in my life I go into analysis paralysis that I overanalyze things. You ever been there? Like, like, yeah, okay, some of you have been <clears throat> in a meeting at work, and you've seen this happen firsthand, right? So they're like, we've got an issue. And then all the managers come and get in a big meeting, and then we have this big meeting, and we talk about the issue, and we talk about a thousand different ways to solve it, and then we say, well, this is a reason that way won't work, and this is a reason that way won't work. One of these times, I was actually in one of these meetings, and this was before I knew better. This is before I became a manager. I was just in one of the meetings, and I was, like, listening to everything that was going on. So I left the meeting and walked out like I was going to the bathroom, and I actually went and fixed the problem and came back and sat down in the meeting and let them talk a little bit longer. And then I said, oh, by the way, the problem's already fixed. While you guys were talking about it, I was actually fixing the problem. And not the wisest move in the world, okay? That probably was limiting my career just a little bit by doing that. But at least I said, you know what? I got tired of talking about it. Let's just, let's just do something about it. And I... I think that sometimes even, uh, even in the church, we can get a little bit of analysis paralysis, you know? Like we come in initially, like I, th- I was thinking about the church when we first started, Simple Church when we first started. Man, it was just a bunch of believers that wanted to come together, wanted to praise Jesus, wanted other people to praise Jesus, wanted other people to know about Jesus. And we were like, we're all brothers and sisters in Christ, and this is good, and we're just getting to praise Jesus together, right? And, and, then, and then things happen, right? Then, then, then somebody leaves, and you're like, why did they leave? Or somebody talks about you. Why did they talk about me? I think I'm leaving because so-and-so talked about me. Kenny did not handle this situation appropriately. I did not like the way that he handled this. And then, and then what happens from there? Then it's like a little bit of talking behind the scenes, like, oh, I don't, I don't know, man. Can we trust Kenny's judgment? I don't know. Well, here's the thing. We're brothers and sisters in Christ, and Jesus is alive. Sometimes I think we forget that. And I, I really believe tonight we're going to look at, at the book of Revelation. And, and I almost never preach out of Revelation, okay? Like almost never. Just because people sensationalize it so much. Do you understand that the book of Revelation was, was for this purpose? That, that there were seven churches that were being written to in Asia. And, and they were under a lot of persecution. They were under heavy persecution. Like they were dying for the cause of Christ daily. Lots and lots of Christians, okay? The book of Revelation was read to them so that they would have hope. Now, we have a tendency sometimes to, to pick apart the book of Revelation and what does this symbol mean and what does that symbol mean and why are there so many heads on this beast? And like we go through and we're like, 
we try to nitpick it apart. Now, I'm not saying it's not good to analyze Scripture because it is. But sometimes I think we miss some stuff because we're nitpicking all these little things and we're not looking at the big picture. We're not just allowing ourselves to be absorbed into the picture and see what, what is it really, what is the picture saying, you know? And the book of Revelation, I believe, is supposed to really be approached that way. It's supposed to give believers hope that one day God's returning to set up his earthly kingdom, you know? And, and, and for those that don't know Jesus, it's supposed to strike fear into them. It's supposed to let them know that when that day comes, it's going to be a very scary experience for you if you don't know Jesus. And like we, sometimes we nitpick all the little things apart, like let's look at this and this and this and this, and we miss the big picture. Uh, I, I have this uh, happen a lot at youth camp. I've told you this before, and I, I love to give this example. Uh, we, we have this situation that happens where Somebody will get really convicted by the word of God, and it'll really strike them in the heart, and they'll start tearing them apart, and they're crying and weeping and all this kind of stuff. And now, can I talk to you, Kenny? Okay, absolutely. Let's go talk. Let's go talk about Jesus. And then they start talking for a few minutes, and then they go, did Adam and Eve really, did they have belly buttons? I mean, like that, that is the source of your biggest concern right now. Like, like God has struck you in the heart with his Holy Spirit. He's pricked your heart and pierced you. And, and, and your biggest question that you got to struggle with right now, are there dinosaurs in the Bible? Can you tell me? I need to know. This is what is keeping me from having faith in Jesus Christ. I need to know. Was the behemoth in Job, was that really a dinosaur? I need to know. And I'm like, okay, look, you're on step 50,432 Let's start on step one, which is you and Jesus and your heart. Let's talk about that. And they're like, oh, you mean I got to talk about my heart and my sin and the fact that everything I do looks like I hate God. Oh, that? I really rather not talk about that because that makes me feel bad. I'm like, that's the reason you're crying right now. So God has revealed that to you, showed that to you. And, and, and people don't want to deal with that stuff. We, want to, we have a tendency over time to want to nitpick things apart, including the church, including even the resurrection of Christ. We've been in the series about resurrection, and sometimes I think we get so deep inside the resurrection, the, the details sometimes that we miss the beauty of the resurrection and, and, and the fact that our God is alive, that Jesus is still reigning, still ruling, and still alive, and he's still at work inside the church. He's still doing things inside this church. He's still showing us things and correcting us and molding us and shaping us and giving us hope and, and showing us the, 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 the danger and, and, and the, the, what's going to happen in the end for people that don't know Jesus, you know? Like, I think sometimes we miss that because we're so fixated on, you know, you know what? We spent $55 on cookies in the children's department, and I don't know that that glorifies Jesus, you know? Jesus is alive and, he's, and well because of the resurrection of Christ. And, and one day, all of this other garbage that we're so consumed with is going to fade away. It's going to be consumed with fire, and it's not going to matter. And you know what's going to matter is the fact that Jesus is alive. That he is resurrected from, from the dead and he holds the keys to death, hell, and the grave. And, and, and that's what's going to matter. 
all this other little, little nitpicking stuff, and I don't like this, and I don't like that, and I can't believe Kenny did this, and you know all these little things, man. We're brothers and sisters in Christ, called together for the purposes of the gospel of Jesus. Let's do that. Let's do that. Uh, I'm going to read something in Revelation to you. We're going to start at the end, and then we'll go back to the beginning. You don't have to put this on the screen. I just want to read this. Don't be afraid. I'm the first and the last. I am the living one. I died, but look, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and the grave. Jesus says this to one of his apostles. He says it to John, who is still alive because all the other followers, of, all the other disciples of Jesus, the original apostles of Jesus, are dead. Dead. They've been killed for their faith, they're gone, they're dead. John's still alive. He's being persecuted. He's been isolated on an island. And Jesus reveals himself to John. And John's terrified. Uh, I want to let you know that I really believe when you experience the glory of God in person, when you pass from this life to the next or when Jesus comes back, whichever, whichever one of those comes first, I believe you're going to be so struck by God and his presence and his holiness that you are going to be terrified initially. I really believe that. The thing that, that, that Jesus has to say to John when he first reveals himself to him is this, don't be afraid. <laughs> don't be terrified, John. I don't know, I, th I think that we, we don't take these few words here and live them out day to day in our lives and in the church with, with this being the 30,000 foot view of what it is that we're supposed to be doing and why that we do it. It's because Christ is alive, because Jesus has been resurrected from the dead and he is alive forever and ever. So we're going to read it tonight. We're going to read what, what happened to John in Revelation chapter 1, which, like I say, I don't typically preach from Revelation. <clears throat> we may start a series in Revelation. I don't know. It says in Revelation chapter 1, beginning in verse 9, I, John, your brother and your partner in suffering in God's kingdom and in patient, patient endurance to which Jesus calls us, Notice, the first, excuse me, I need to drink, take a drink of water. <clears throat> I keep this water up here for that reason. <clears throat> Hoping I'll never have to drink from it, but that's why I keep it up here. <clears throat> Thank you, pollen, by the way. <laughs> Notice he says, I, John, am your brother. He's talking to believers. Notice the word brother. I think that in the first century church, when they would have heard that, they would have understood it better than we understand it in the church today. I don't think that we treat the people in our church like our brothers and sisters. I don't think we treat them like family. I think that we would rather nitpick them apart, point out their flaws, and at the end of the day, give ourselves an excuse to walk away from them. That's really what I think. 
And we're constantly looking for some reason that somebody's made us mad, hurt our feelings, so therefore I'm going to leave and I'm going to go find a new family. Is that really the way it works with family? It's not. It's not supposed to anyway. Your family is the people that you're there through thick and thin. And when they do something stupid or make you mad, you get mad and you get over it. That's what happens because they're your family. They're your blood kin. You're like, I can't go get a new family. They just are. Yeah, they make me mad. Yeah, they frustrate me. But they're still my family. Do you know that that's the way we're supposed to be with the church? And John says, man, I'm your brother and your partner in suffering. Now, we don't know suffering, okay? Just to be straight up honest with you, we don't know suffering like they knew suffering. First century church, Nero, there was a giant fire in Rome, and Nero said, you know who caused it? It was all those Christians. So I'll tell you what we're going to do. We're going to dip them in oil, and we're going to use them as candles to light the city. That's suffering. You and me being treated weird at the lunch table, not really suffering, okay? Because you're a Christ follower, people know that, and, and pff, God forbid you got a Bible that you actually pull out and read in front of people, you know what I mean? Like, you would consider that like suffering. People are going to think I'm a weirdo. I'm a freak. I like, I'm one of those Bible thumpers. You know, like I'll never have any friends whatsoever. And that's our idea of suffering. That's our idea of suffering. These people wore the badge of Christ with a, with a badge of honor. And when they said, you're going to be dipped in oil so we can burn you like a candle, they said, so be it. So be it. I'm a Christian. If you want to know who I am, I'm a Christ follower. I was listening to David Platt today, and he was talking about this man who, who, was, who was contemplating coming to faith in Christ. His mother looked at him and said, if you become a Christian, I'll kill myself. His mother looked at him and said, if you become a Christian, I'll kill myself. And his dad looked at him and said, if you become a Christian, you'll destroy this family. I think that's suffering. I think that's suffering. How many in here have had your mother look at you and say, if you become a Christian, I'll kill myself? Probably not many, not many people, if anybody in here has ever had that happen. That man still got saved. He came to faith in Christ. He said, no matter what, Jesus is the most important thing. Now, thankfully, she did not kill herself, but either way, he became a Christian. He didn't know that outcome before he became a Christian. He said, I'm going to be a Christian. Every day there are people being skinned alive for the fact that they are Christians. Christians. And yet we nitpick these little bitty things apart and say all of this stuff, man, and we get so focused on all the little details that we forget that Christ is alive and he is the most important thing. Man. I, I just try to picture myself if I was John and, and had experienced this thing. Well, I'll go on and read. I, am, I, John, am your brother and your partner in suffering and in God's kingdom and in patient endurance to which Jesus calls us. Now, patient endurance. <clears throat> Patiently enduring. So patient means you've got to wait. Nobody here has patience, okay? I'll say that. I know that because we just aren't very good about being patient. We like to be entertained. We like for things to come quickly. We, if McDonald's takes more than four minutes, then something is wrong. You know, that, that, you know there, there is something wrong with the world. It is spinning in reverse. If, 
if things don't happen immediately, you know? Like there's, there's something really wrong with the world. And he says, patient endurance. It, to endure means that you got to put up with it, guys. That this kind of persecution and suffering that we're being called to, to be in, in the family of Christ, which, by the way, it, it, Jesus' life was characterized by suffering. Therefore, if we are going to be Christ followers, if we're going to be Christ-like, which is to be Christians, then, then our lives are not going to be easy and they're not going to be pain-free. It's just the way that it is. Patient endurance. Just hang on and wait, and you're going to have to endure. It's going to happen. And John says, I'm right there along with you. And John, even more so, I mean, he's isolated on this, this island, and, and he's alone. And it was a very common thing for the Romans to do, to, to send you off to some desolate island somewhere and, and keep you there as a way to keep you shut up and a way to punish you. And that's what John's enduring here. And he writes this letter. I was exiled to the island of Patmos for preaching the word of God and for my testimony about Jesus. Why was he isolated there? Why was he put there? Because he was preaching the word. Did John know that something bad would happen to him for preaching the word of Jesus? Absolutely. He knew that the consequences were terrible. Fortunately for him, he wasn't killed, but just isolated and put in prison. But that he didn't know the outcome before he was preaching about Jesus, before he was sharing the word of God. He didn't know that. All he knew is that this is the most important thing, what I'm doing. And that was the most important thing to him. He talks about a specific day that he experienced here, and it says, It was the Lord's day, and I was worshiping in the Spirit. So it was just him and the Holy Spirit of God and he was just worshiping. There was no <laughs> iPhone. There wasn't any Lauren Daigle. There, there, was, there was no David Crowder. It was just him alone, probably in a cave, some kind of dungeon, some kind of pit. And it was him on the Lord's day. And what do we find John doing? He's just worshiping. It's just him and the Holy Spirit. I'd venture to say that very few of us have had an experience like this very, very recently. Where it was just you and the Holy Spirit. No music, no nothing. Just you and the Holy Spirit. And you were just worshiping Jesus because of who he is. It's on the Lord's day. So he's celebrating the resurrection of Jesus. And he's just there in the spirit, worshiping Jesus. Suddenly I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet blast. Now I want you to understand something about a trumpet blast. Anytime a trumpet blast is mentioned in the Bible, this is one of the things I try to repeat to you so you'll have them kind of ingrained in your mind. Um, just like when I say anytime God asks a question, it's an invitation, right? So I say that over and over again so you'll know that when you see a question in the Bible from Jesus, from God, it's not that he doesn't know, it's that he's giving an invitation. When you see a trumpet blast in, in God's word, that is an indication of the calling together of God's people. That's what it is. A trumpet blast is the uniting of God's people for a purpose, right? So here, John hears a trumpet blast, and it's Jesus in person because the next letters are in red, talking to him 
a loud voice. And, 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 and listen to what he says. This is about the churches. Listen to what he says. He says, it said, write in a book everything you see and send it to the seven churches in the city of Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. He says, write these things down and send them to these churches. God cares about the church and he cares a lot about the church. Jesus is talking to John to reveal the kingdom of God to him in the first person. And the first thing he starts talking about is the churches. He says, the reason I'm telling you is because I want the churches to hear. I want the churches to know. Simple church is in that list. Simple church is in that list. He wants us to know that he knows us by name. He knows our struggles. He knows what's happening inside of our church. And he cares deeply about it. When I turned to see who was speaking to me, I, I saw seven gold lampstands. And standing in the middle of the lampstands was someone like the Son of Man, who was wearing a long robe with a gold sash across his chest. Just listen to this. Just listen to this picture that John paints of standing in the presence of Jesus, the resurrected Jesus. Just imagine for yourself. Don't pick apart the words just let yourself absorb into the picture and be there with John for just a moment. Just allow yourself to do that. I saw seven gold lampstands. And standing in the middle of the lampstands was someone like the Son of Man. He was wearing a long robe with a gold sash across his chest. His head and his hair were like wool, as white as snow. And his eyes were like flames of fire. His feet were like polished bronze refined in a furnace, and his voice thundered like mighty ocean waves. He held seven stars in his right hand, and a sharp two-edged sword came from his mouth. And his face was like the sun in all its brilliance. Can you picture this in your mind? You hear a voice, you're worshiping, you hear a voice calling out, and you turn around and this is what you see. You're in the very presence of God, seeing him face to face. We all will experience this. Every person in this room will experience this. Can you imagine? If you saw that, eyes were like flames of fire, his feet were like polished bronze refined in a furnace, and his voice thundered like mighty ocean waves. He held seven stars in his right hand, and a sharp two-edged sword came from his mouth. And his face was like the sun in all its brilliance. If you see that, Let's say you see that standing right here beside me. 
Is your initial response going to be to run up and hug his neck? Is that going to be the way you respond to that? Probably not, right? You're not going to go, oh, I'm a friend of God. Let me run up and hug Jesus' neck. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as if I were dead. I think that's the most likely response to the glory of God. To this beautiful picture of Jesus that John has painted for us. He did what I think I would do. And that was to fall at his, at his feet as if he was dead. He just collapsed right in front of him. Unable to stand. Listen to this. But he laid his right hand on me. But he laid his right hand on me and said, don't be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I died, but look, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the, the keys of death in the grave. So we've been talking about resurrection and we talk a lot about our resurrection one day and being in the presence of the Lord and being part of God's kingdom. I think sometimes we just need to be in awe of the one who is alive forever and ever that he was dead and now he is alive and now he rules and reigns and he cares about the churches and he cares about us, yes. But he is awesome and he is powerful and he is to be revered. This is what he says. Write down what you have seen. Both the things that are happening now and the things that will happen. Get out your pen and paper, John. We've got to write a letter to the churches I want them to know. I want them to have hope. This is the meaning of the mystery of the seven stars you saw in my right hand and the seven gold lampstands. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. You say, man, what does all that mean? We could pick it apart. We really could. Or we could just stand back and bask in the glory of God and say, you know what? Where is Jesus standing? In the midst of the churches? What does he hold in his hand? The angels of the seven churches? The caretakers? The ones that are there to carry out the mission of God? The ones that are there to convey the message of God? To do the work of God? In his hand. Not way off in some distant place somewhere. The caretakers of the church are in the hand of God. The resurrected Jesus, the one who was alive forever. And he's standing amongst the lampstands. He's standing amongst the churches that he cares so deeply about. These churches, if I'm perfectly honest with you, most of them are screwed up. They got a lot of problems. We go through those problems in the next few chapters, but they got issues. But Jesus cares. 
Jesus cares because he talks about the issues. You know, one of the things that we don't do in the church is talk about the issues. We don't talk about the fact that, you know, so-and-so has said this and so-and-so has did this and it's causing division in the church. No, we don't talk about that. We try to pretend like everything's good and that we all love each other. The reality is, is when we're family and we care about each other so deeply, man, we should be encouraging each other, man. Let's do this thing together. Let's, let's remember what we're here for. Remember that we're going to be standing in the presence of God, that, that I know we've got issues because we're a church, because we're people, and people are full of faults. But Jesus is standing in the midst of us. And Jesus' caretakers of the church are in his hand. Let's not forget that. Let's not forget that. As we look at the resurrected Jesus as he has revealed himself to John right here, I'm just in awe of the fact that he's revealing all this to John, and the first thing he starts with is this is a letter that's going out to the churches to give them hope. I want them to know that I know everything about them. As a matter of fact, the next few chapters, he goes on to list all of their issues. He lists the good things. He lists the bad things. He says, I know you intimately. I know what's going on out front. I know what's going on behind the scenes. I know you intimately. And the resurrected Jesus has made himself appear to John for the purposes of giving the church hope and to point out where they're, they're strong and where they're weak. I think that we should take something away from the fact that the resurrected Jesus, who is alive forever, cares about the church. Cares deeply about the church. He cares deeply about what's going on inside these walls. He cares deeply about believers that are united as brothers and sisters. Now, when I say the church, I want you to know that it's not just within these walls. It's the followers of Jesus. They are our brothers and sisters in Christ. And this weekend, this Sunday, we're going to be packing food for some believers and non-believers in a place that we will never, we'll never meet these people. We won't know their names, but we get an opportunity to reach out to our brothers and sisters. And that is wonderful, and that is great, and I am so excited about us doing that. But what I don't want us to do is neglect the brothers and sisters that are sitting right next to you. I don't want us to neglect the brothers and sisters that are, that are our family right next to us in an effort to reach out to our brothers and sisters across the world. We're supposed to do both. And Jesus cares about them all. Father, thank you for this precious word. Thank you for the resurrected Jesus your son, who is alive forever, that holds the keys to death and the grave. And, Lord, he is forever the ruler. God, I just pray that we recognize, God, the power and awesome might of our Lord and Savior. We also recognize that he's the one that put his right hand on John and said, don't be afraid. He's all of those. He's all of those. I pray that our minds and our hearts will be fixed on that. Not all the faults and, and nitpick the things of our brothers and sisters that, God, that we don't like. That we would just recognize that they are family, full of faults, but they belong to us because they are blood. 
God, we are united by blood, the blood of Jesus Christ. Lord, I just pray for reconciliation. God, I pray for us as brothers and sisters in Christ to be united with one purpose and one mind. God, and that is to share the glory of this gospel with the entire world. God, may we not neglect the people around us that are hurting. May we treat them like family and love them like family. God, but may we all have our eyes fixed on the glory of God, the glory of this resurrected Jesus that John so beautifully describes. Lord, I pray. I don't know what the needs are in this place right now. God, but I just pray that your will would be done, that we would worship in the Spirit just like John did. God, that your Holy Spirit would move amongst us. God, that you would open our eyes to your glory. God, and I pray that whatever you need to do in this place, we just respond to you. Thank you so much for this precious word. Thank you so much for the testimony of John. In Jesus' name.